Welcome to Line Noise, a podcast about electronic music. I'm Philip Sherburn. And I'm Ben Cardew. And Philip, you're just back from Berlin. How was it? Uh, Berlin was great. Uh, I got to see a little bit of snow, which was a nice change of pace. It's, it's been a few years. Uh, this was my first time back to Berlin in, since, I, since I moved back to Barcelona, in fact, in, in three years. So uh, I visited Hard Wax. I, I bought a bunch of records. Uh, I saw some friends. I was given a bunch of records. I came home with a big bag full of vinyl. It felt like 10 years ago, really. And is there one track from that that is Berlin at the moment? Is Berlin in February 2016? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I didn't actually go to any clubs while I was there because I was there in the middle of the week. That's my excuse. So I couldn't tell you. Although I did see um, Andres in the dining room at, uh, at the hotel where I was staying. Uh, I also saw the Black Madonna in the hotel where I was staying. The, uh, the place was just like you could hang out and see most of the world's DJ elite. That's what you want from Berlin. It, it? it really is. <laughs> Living the dream. <laughs> so today um, we're going to be talking about Kanye West uh, and more specifically Kanye West and uh, electronic music, which unbelievably among all the sort of acres of digital trees that have been felled to, to speak about Kanye West is actually something that... Um, maybe hasn't got the the attention it deserves, I think. I mean, there's so many other things um, to talk about with Kanye West. Um, and I put it to you, in fact, that Kanye West is the uh, hip-hop pop star that has been most influenced by electronic music, and particularly underground electronic music. Yeah, I think you could really be onto something right there. I think certainly with Yeezus and the fact that he worked with um, Arca, that he had Hudson Mohawk working alongside him, that that really became quite obvious that he that he had his ear to the ground in a way uh, unlike any other rapper or rap figure that I can think of. I mean, to give some background, we were talking uh, about the new album when it came out um, two weeks ago, roughly, and we were talking about the samples that were on it. And... It was almost each sample we mentioned. It got it got weirder, and and the 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 conversation got stranger because I think we started off talking about there's an Arthur Russell sample, um, there's a Mr. Fingers sample. And he also samples um, Masters at Work, well, Louis Vega hard drive, and I think he samples Kings of Tomorrow as well. Yeah, there's a Kings of Tomorrow acapella on there as well. And you think who does that in in 2016? Which big mainstream rapper samples Kings of Tomorrow? It's, um, let me see, Kings of Tomorrow, that was on the song called Low Lights. And I don't know here who co-produced Low Lights, but I have to assume that some of, some of these samples ha- must come from the collaborators that he's chosen to work with. Um, for instance, DJ DS, DJ Dodger Stadium, which is Jerome LOL and, and uh, Samo Soundboy, they ended up working on five songs on The Life of Pablo uh, one of which was Fade, which includes both Mr. Finger's Mystery of Love baseline and the sample from Hard Drive's Deep Inside. Now, that's totally their sweet spot, that kind of soulful uh, vintage house. So it seems fairly uh, plausible to me that those are influences they brought to the table. Well, this is something I'm really interested in. I mean, where does he get these influences from? Um and one thing he was I was looking into this and he was talking in an interview he's from Chicago about how he used to listen to in fact still does listen to a lot of Chicago house um and it's kind of strange again again to find because I, I've always thought I mean less so these days but there's kind of a big dividing line between big hip hop stars and particularly house music I mean you might sort of see them listening to techno or something like that but but house you know vocal house like that it doesn't it surprised me to, to hear that yeah i think i mean because house with the exception of like ghetto house is generally seen as not particularly kind of macho it's not particularly masculine necessarily you know it's 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 softer it's um i think that interests me about him um is the way in which he uses these samples because Obviously, it's very much one thing to use a big sample of a well-known um, electronic music song or even use a, a small sample of a well-known electronic music song. But um, the way in which Kanye West puts things together, for me, that's kind of the most interesting thing about him, the sort of the way he finds people to work with, he finds interesting sounds, and he, he puts them together. Um, and the one... Uh, well, there's two examples of that I wanted to give. Um this track of his called Blame Game, um, in which which uses parts of Avril the Fourteenth by Aphex Twin. 
But rather than just sampling, which would you know most people would do, he gets um, John Legend, I believe it is, to actually play something that sounds like it. So it's weird. You've got this sort of really well-known, quite classical soul music piano player trying to recreate something from Aphex Twin. I think it's, it was when he was doing microtones. And I seem to remember he even said, because of the way he was doing it, you couldn't play it on the piano because he's using notes uh, in between notes, if you see what I mean. And that's like a very... I've watched a video of John Legend playing this, and you think, why is John Legend playing an Aphex Twin track? Why is he trying to recreate it? But it was really interesting. Do you think any, any of that could have to do with perhaps Aphex Twin wouldn't clear the sample? <laughs> And they had to re-perform it? Possibly. It could have been. Um, I, I like to think that he just had the idea. I don't know, I don't know why. I just kind of like the idea that there's such a strange idea getting John Legend into playing Aphex Twin um, piano sample that, you know, was, never, was almost certainly never played in that way. You know, recreating something that was probably made in a very different way. Um, the other example is Blood on the Leaves, um, which is probably one of his best known songs now um and i was reading a little bit about how it was produced and he he apparently for a long time um he'd wanted to sample strange fruit nina simone's strange fruit and for a long time he'd wanted to sample um are you ready by tonight and those are very tonight the t t and g h t yeah yeah um some very very different uh songs and he puts them together and i and you just think, who on earth thinks of putting those two songs together? And putting aside any kind of issues you might have about, and people have had about, you know, sampling uh, Strange Fruit. Sonically, I think it really, really works. It's it, it sounds like it shouldn't, but sonically it does work when you have those two samples together. And I like that, a really unlikely matchup. One thing I think is interesting about his sampling is he does not shy away from being obvious sometimes. I mean, the, the Mystery of Love baseline it's hard to think of a more iconic baseline in house music and he doesn't do anything to it. He doesn't flip it. I mean, it's just the baseline. Um, and, and that's enough for him. You know, I mean, that's, it, he manages to sort of recontextualize it, but he doesn't go out of his way to, to do something tricky to it. I mean, now that's not always the case with, I think it was, um, there was an Arca track that he used on Yeezus on hold my liquor and I listened back to to the original, and it's. Com- I mean, if you didn't read on whosampled.com that he had yeah. sampled the Arca track, you never would have noticed that it was in there. And that was a case where he's really just taking something and kind of manipulating it and using it almost as just a textural element. And you interviewed Arca. Did you did you speak about this at all? Uh, no, I don't think we did. I I I remember talking to Aphex Twin about uh, about. Kanye and I remember mentioning April the 14th and I think he all that he said to me was that it hadn't been sampled that it was replayed but he seemed to be sort of um, not even remember exactly how it all went down himself (laughs) there was definitely some controversy I was looking it up and I think uh, he said they didn't want to pay him correctly or they offered him a flat fee or something like that I'm not I'm not quite sure Um, what do you think someone like Arca gets out of working um, with Kanye West well, obviously, it was, I mean, it, it, it gave him a, I don't know if it was a, a concrete boost to his career, but it was certainly a media boost. I mean, for a minute there, all you saw was Arca, the new Yeezus collaborator. You know, I, I think for a lot of people who kind of come from the underground and work with him, there's the cosign, right? Um, I think also, I mean, it must be an amazing experience, you know, to, oh, to yeah. be far less yeah. cynical. It must be super interesting and fascinating to work alongside uh kanye and and his is it mike dean is that the name of his sounds right um kind of right hand man producer i mean i was reading an interview with dj ds and they were talking about the process they spent basically three and a half weeks just kind of holed up in his studio just cranking out material for him and i think the amount that you must learn from working alongside uh him and his people has has got to be pretty pretty interesting i think it's really interesting to me that arca having worked with kanye and also having worked with bjork then turned around and did an album that was so strange and idiosyncratic and so arca that it does make me feel like maybe it's more of a reflection on arca than on kanye but i but 
I don't know, maybe it says to me that Kanye is picking people that he knows will have their own vision because it's easy to imagine getting sucked up into the Kanye vortex and then just right. turning out kind of copycat material and trying to ride that wave. But instead, you've got Arca turning out stuff that's even weirder than before. And I think that's somehow maybe validating. No, that's definitely a positive thing. And do you think... Um, that I mean, Kanye West is obviously very, uh, very influential generally within within the world of rap, within the world of pop, if you want to put it that way. Um, do you think we're going to see other people copying this? I mean, do, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but do you think other people are going to be sampling Fingers Inc. and and putting them together with with hard drive songs? In a way, I don't think so. I mean, because it's not like Kanye made went and made a house record. You know, I mean, he he took a baseline, but beyond that, you don't. You know, when I saw the the credits that, wow, there's going to be a, a you know Larry Heard baseline on here, there's going to be an Arthur Russell sample, I really thought it was going to be kind of a house-influenced record. But instead, I think he's cherry-picking to such an extent. It's almost like anything these days where the, the modern act of listening is taking things from all over the place and kind of running through them through a filter and doing something different with them. I mean, in the same sense, like Drake has been working with, you know, Sampha and Subtract. And, you know, for a minute there, he seemed to be drawing a lot of inspiration from UK bass music. Yeah. But at the same time, he kind of filtered that into the Ovo sound and the Drake sound. And it. so I, I don't know if it's, I think it's more of a sign of just kind of the general omnivorousness of, of right. listeners across the board these days. Because people... Accept it. I mean, I haven't uh, heard uh, anyone ever say about Kenny West, as far as I can make out, that they don't like the fact he's using electronic music. They don't like the fact he's using uh, the these samples. I mean, people generally just seem... Well, obviously, he's massively critically acclaimed, and people generally just seem to go with it. What about the uh, the Arthur Russell sample? Because, I mean, I have a couple things. That I'm, I'm just not sure it's a it's a super successful sample. And I have seen on Facebook recently quite a few people who are a little tired of mm, the way that Arthur Russell's legacy has been spun, especially in the past decade. Um, they Quite a few people have compared him to Nick Drake and right. saying that this is essentially somebody who whose work has, has ended up maybe losing some of what it's what made it special because it's been kind of taken out of context i mean with nick drake the famous example was pink moon in the volkswagen yeah. ad right both of them are very they're musicians that make very personal intimate music that speaks to a lot of people sort of you know in in the depths of their souls in the small hours of the night and all of a sudden here's arthur russell on you know like the biggest pop slash rap record of the year um i mean what what do you think does that change how arthur russell's music gets heard does that change how you will hear world of echo going forward i don't think so i mean to be honest i'm i'm one of those people that thinks pretty much anyone should be able to sample anything you know um so long as i think you don't massively change the sentiment of the original song I, th I think pretty much you know obviously they're legal issues but if you want to sample arthur russell if you want to sample nick drake and turn it into a high energy house banger then go for it you know and it doesn't it doesn't really change how how i see it in the end um in fact i almost quite like it that it's so versatile it can be used in these different ways and if i want to listen to the original i just will it's funny, I remember when My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy came out and he sampled Mike Oldfield's In High Places, which was a song that I had only recently sort of discovered um, because my, my wife was a fan and we had bought the record at a secondhand shop in Berlin or a flea market or something like that. And so I had had Mike Oldfield's In High Places in, in heavy rotation for quite a while. And all of a sudden it turns up on the Kanye record. And at first I was so upset. I was like, no, don't do this <laughs> to this song you. because this song is... I don't know. I felt like a real connection with it. And yet what happened over time was, I mean, I grew to really love the, the Kanye record. And so it, 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 it all worked itself out, I guess. What, I mean, one thing that I didn't particularly like 
Um, and this is like my my gut reaction. I mean, because again, as I say, I think people can pretty much sample what they like. Was was stronger because um, he sampled one of my favorite Daft Punk songs, and I didn't particularly like what he did with it. Um, but I was going to ask you actually, one to what extent do you think sampling uh, Daft Punk in Stronger? To what extent did that help to break electronic music in the states? That's a really good question. What year was that? That that was two thousand seven. Yeah, yeah. And their Coachella performance was two thousand six. So obviously, you know, they had who who helped whom there. It's tricky. I mean, it's hard for me to say, but but you know, you've got this track that uses the chorus of one of Daft Punk's best known songs um i'm not i think it was a number one hit in the u.s it certainly is his biggest selling single to date um that kind of leg ups got out and as you say i'm sure it was mutually beneficial you know because he got some of their aura i suppose yeah, yeah. and they got some of his massive star power you know american star power yeah i'm sure there's a sort of a symbiotic thing there i don't know if i would go so far as to sort of credit kanye with the emergence of edm in the states but i would say that it's all part of that Stronger was kind of part of that general flourishing. I, I do think it's interesting that Kanye seems to have a thing for, for French electronic yeah. music. I mean, there was also Why I Love You from from Watch the Throne, which sampled Cassius's I Love You So. Um, and it's interesting, too, because I was looking through a lot of his electronic samples, and oftentimes they're things that came out just the year before. So you get the sense he's a guy who really he gets really enthusiastic about something and he yeah. wants to do something with it right now. So you had um, tonight's Are You Ready in 2012 turning into Blood on the Leaves the next year. You had Cassius's I Love You So in 2010 turning into Why I Love You the next year. Flux Pavilion's I Can't Stop turning into Who Gone Stop Me the next year. I mean... He's really, you know, I, I think he's he's a very active listener, I, I suspect. And what do you think, um, where does he go from here? You know, because he's, I mean, Jesus was really a very, very electronic album. Um, the Life of Pablo is, it's a real mix. I mean, I, I would say it's, it's sort of less electronic than Jesus, less mm. abrasive. Um, where, where, where do you think he's going to go next? Do you think he's going to continue taking inspiration from electronic music? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I would, I almost don't dare to venture a guess, but um, I mean, I would love to hear, you know, he, he did so much with, with reggae just even a couple of years ago. I would love to hear that come back in because I feel like that was, I mean, he's got the sister Nancy on the new record, you know, and I feel like these are, that that's always present in his work. I would love to see him go even a little bit further with it. More reggae. More reggae. I mean, you know, reggae is always good. <laughs> Kanye Lion? Yeah, Kanye <laughs> Lion, maybe not. I feel it. I feel it. I feel it. Your love is fading. I feel it. So, Ben, uh, the Sonar uh, lineup has been published, and as usual, there's there's a mixture there, and as usual, there there was kind of a, a name of historic significance on the list that I think surprised a lot of people, and that name is Jean-Michel Jarre. Uh, do you think that—I'm curious to talk to you a little bit about Jean-Michel Jarre, about right. what you think of his work, uh, what you think of his legacy, and, and whether you think— He's a good... Well, how do you think he's going to be at Sonar? Um, what do you think of Jean-Michel Jarre? Um, he's one of those people I respect. I respect a great deal. And the more I look into him, the more I respect him. You know, so, like he sold, what was it, 12 million records with Oxygen. Um, he was a pioneer, undoubtedly a pioneer of electronic music. Um, he's a pioneer of the big spectacle concert. He's played to millions of people at a time. Um, I've been looking at interviews and various videos and things he's done this week, um, and the more I see, the more the more I like him. Um, do I listen to him? Honestly, no, not much. Have you ever listened? I mean, have you ever gone through a period in your life where where have you ever bought a Jean Michel Jarre record, for example? I haven't. No, I mean, I was, I was trying to think the other day of when um, 
when I first heard him. And I, I think that there was a British TV programme when I was younger that had some of Oxygen as the theme tune. I think that was where I heard him. I mean, it's like he's always been there. You know, just sort of in the background somewhere. Like I didn't listen to him. I don't think my parents listened to him, but he was there. You know, you knew the name Jean-Michel Jarre and you knew his sort of famous riffs. I actually did buy a Jean-Michel Jarre album on cassette when I was pretty young. I bought Zoo Look. Um, and huh. I don't know, which is kind of like not one of the main albums in his catalog. Um, I don't know if if that's like 81 or 83 or 84, it's somewhere in there. So I was somewhere between like 11, 12, 13 right. years old. And I actually still like that record, maybe in part because of sort of nostalgia. That was the first like really, truly, purely electronic record I ever heard probably. That was around the time that I was really interested in like um, Thomas Dolby and things like that. Right. But it's an odd record because if I recall correctly, it was made entirely with digital synths, or or it or it privileged digital anyway. And the sound of it is quite different from um, Oxygen and and his early records. Um, I have gone back to him multiple times over the years, thinking this guy's an electronic music pioneer. Yeah. I really should check him out. You know, Vangelis, Tangerine Dream. You know, he he fits into that pantheon somehow. And every time I go back, I just can't really. Um, it's n- it's not my thing. I think he's so kind of melodically and harmonically focused, and for me, it's all about rhythm and texture and timbre. I mean, I I love electronic music with a good melody. I really do. Um, and he has very strong melodies, but there's just something in me that just doesn't quite. It it just doesn't quite connect. I mean, it's very syrupy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very... Um, f- to me, it sounds very French. And I love a lot of French music. Um, but there's something, a very French type of, of melody that I think he's really... He has really got, and maybe maybe it is a bit too syrupy for me. I, I mean, I, I don't know the theory well enough to say what it is, but I, he, he uses a lot of um, sort of chord changes and modulating chords and a lot of... I don't even know. Again, I don't know the theory behind it, but but it's, it's very rich kind of. I don't know. Like Too I like much? my music simpler somehow. I don't like all these sevenths and. <laughs> all of this said, he's playing Sonar on. I think he's ten thirty p.m. on the Friday night, and uh, I plan to be there. W- will you go? Um, you know, I I didn't plan to see him before and then today i watched uh i watched a video of his on youtube and it was amazing i mean i knew that he had done all of these outdoor concerts like he did one um at the great pyramid at giza you know laser shows fireworks and all this stuff and and the one that i saw it was fairly recent i had googled um Jean-Michel Jarre, laser harp. And let me tell you, that does not disappoint. So it was him on stage, um, flanked by screens, many screens, like showing just words, like kind of deep words, you know, like life, war, hunger, hug. Seriously, that was one of the words. Um, you know, like violence, peace, um, I, you know, any, any yeah. kind of deep thinking word you can think of. And then fireworks, nonstop fireworks above his head. So he was outdoors somewhere. And he was on some keyboards, obviously, flanked by two splash cymbals that at like moments of great drama, he would kind of jump up in the air, hit the splash cymbals with his hands, and then go back to soloing on the keys. And um, yeah, it was just so completely over the top. And then at the climax, he comes out, and the laser harp happens, and that's this device that that's like it shoots out la- green laser beams, and he plays them as though it was a harp. And so he, when he covers one of the beams with his hand, it triggers a sound. And so he played a song, quite a long song, doing playing the laser harp. And and I mean, that's when I started thinking sonar, and I started thinking, okay. This is going to be so ridiculous that how can it not be totally awesome? The the interesting thing is, I think, is Sonar by Night takes place in a pretty big place, um, a sort of big exhibition hall out in Hospitalet. Um, and for most acts, it's massive. 
but for Jean-Michel Jarre, that's small. What's well, true? It's what's actually going to be like, you know, <laughs> intimate club gig for Jean-Michel Jarre. <laughs> and also, it, it makes me think a little bit. What, what what's he what's he going to be like at ten thirty at night? Because that's really early. That's really early for for Barcelona. That's really early for Sonar. It's going to be sparsely attended. Do you think? Well, I mean, there's a logistics issue. I mean, anybody who goes to Sonar by day. It doesn't really wrap up until 9.30, maybe even 10. I mean, if you want to go to both Sonar by Day and Sonar by Night and you want to eat something in between, you really have to plan your time, right? Yeah. For that reason alone, I mean, people just aren't, they're, they're not arriving to the night that early. There are lines. I mean, nobody goes that early. So, yeah. that I think all of this said, and I agree, I think, I was thinking about, his role in Sona and him playing Sona and I think it's actually a very good booking um, because uh, I think it was 2014 um, they had Massive Attack headlining uh, and I, I was reviewing it for The Quietus well, one of one of many and one of the points I made um, in my review of, of Massive Attack was that it's quite difficult for Sona I think to get big electronic acts because Massive Attack I guess are an electronic act and they've got a lot of history but they're not kind of obvious and if you're sonar you're not going to get big edm stars but you've got to get someone big who does electronic music and you know hopefully with a history so Kraftwerk had them new order had them having them again um chemical brothers last year underworld a few years ago it's actually quite difficult and so when they announced jean-michel jean i thought you know what actually that's a really good booking. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because it's someone with a massive amount of history in electronic music. You know, whether I listen to him or not, it made a lot of sense there. Yeah, that's that's true, actually. Maybe next year they can get Kitaro or somebody. <laughs> uh, <laughs> low blow. Um, while we're talking about Jean-Michel Jarre, I mean, I guess we need to talk about one of the reasons that he's playing Sonar is it's not just because he's a, a, a titan of electronic music, but he has new material out. He does. He had, uh, sometime last year, this Electronica Volume 1, I believe was the it Electronica was, yeah. 1, The Time Machine, which was an album of collaborations with a whole bunch of different artists. Um, M83, Air, Boys Noise, Vince Clark, Little Boots, Moby, Gasafelstein, Pete Townsend, Tangerine Dream, Laurie Anderson, Armin Van Buren, Massive Attacks 3D, John Carpenter, and the classical pianist Lang Lang. Yeah, what a lineup! And uh, I, I, you reviewed it. I did, and you gave it four point zero out of ten. Yeah, um, and wh- wh- why the low mark? I, uh, you know, I went back and I, I, I reread my review today, and I re-listened to the album, and I, I was hoping that maybe I was just being uncharitable, but it still doesn't work for me. Um, my issues with it are. Our legion. One of them is that it just it felt calculated to me, and maybe that's unkind, but it felt I don't know. I it's hard for me to imagine an album with all of those different artists on it actually working right as an album. And maybe that says more about what I want of an album want out of an album than anything else. But it it needs to make a certain amount of sense, you know, as a listening experience. It felt it felt like something put together by an A and R department to to kind of tick all the boxes. Um, in addition to that, it just didn't, I mean, most of it didn't sound very good. Yeah. The bits that I liked were the Gasafelstein track and I, I'm not even a big Gasafelstein fan. So when, when he's the highlight, like, you know, something's going wrong. Um, and I liked the first of the two part Vince Clark collaborations, right? Because how can you not like something Vince Clark is involved in? Although the second one devolved into sort of trance and got really bad, really fast. Um, it just it didn't make any sense to me. I mean, the Armin Van Buren track was super trancy and sounded like you would expect. Um, the air track was weird, sort of schlocky and meandering. It was just again, it was all very syrupy. I mean i I didn't get the impression that it was put together by an AMR ANR committee. I don't think it hung together well at all. I agree with you on that. Um, I got the impression, and how can we know, but that he, lots of people wanted to work with him and he wanted to work with them. But it just, there was very little connecting it, you know? And um, I listened to the album on YouTube, as, you know, as is the way these days. 
And that kind of gave me a whole extra dimension because obviously some of the tracks have proper videos, some of them don't. And um, by the time we got to the Little Boots track, which is not just a track that I don't like, but the video is is not very good. It was just, it was a real low light. I'm, and it things didn't really recover from then. Um, I, I found that, I mean, as an album, didn't really hang together. But then if you look at individual tracks, they didn't really work either. I didn't think any of the vocals worked. Um, and um, some of the tracks were kind of okay. But it's, uh, for example, the Armin, Armin Van Buren one is really interesting because it worked, kind of. I mean, you could imagine in a big EDM rave, that would be a really big track. And Armin Van Buren DJ set, that would be a really big track. But would anyone know that it was done with Jean-Michel Jean? And it, that's kind of cruel because in a way you can see Jean-Michel Jarre's influence in all this big EDM. So maybe that's his influence continuing through this this new generation. Um, I, I didn't I didn't like that track. It's not really my thing, you know, big big sort of EDM. But I thought it kind of made sense. That was in a one way. of the only ones that did really make sense. Um, that I thought, like at the other end of the spectrum, there was the the Laurie Anderson track, and she was doing her thing the sort of spoken affected spoken word um which to me there sounded like uh like it had a kind of sort of a, a critique of gender politics i mean she would she was saying things like please touch me don't touch me and i mean it was you know whatever she does there, there, there are interesting ideas behind yes. it but then it was set to this track that I'm assuming was all his doing that sounded like something that would be on like a late night, like Cinemax, like softcore porn movie, some sort of hotel Costas, like really <laughs> bad down tempo, like kind of sexy in scare quotes, you know? And to me, it, it, it went exactly opposite to what, you know, the Laurie Anderson thing was sort of off putting and it made you, it should make you uncomfortable. It should not make you sort of horny. And so I don't know. I felt like he totally didn't get what she was doing. And it made me wonder to what extent like any of them had um, like right of refusal. I mean, it just made me feel like he, he definitely had the final word on, on all of this stuff. Could we say that he was doing it deliberately to make it unsettling? Ooh, provocative opinion. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think so. But you never know. You never know. You never know. So, yeah, so I, I am curious to hear Volume 2, which is Electronica 2, The Heart of Noise, um, which is going to have Pet Shop Boys, Julia Holter, Primal Scream, Gary Newman, Hans Zimmer, Peaches, Sebastian Tellier, The Orb, which I'm curious about that. Sirius Mo, Yellow, Jeff Mills, also super curious. Well, the Orb is a really interesting one because um, they obviously famously remixed one of his tracks um, for their own Toxigen. He rejected it. They released it and it went on to become their biggest British hit. And That's interesting. Yeah. And actually, it's a really good track. I mean, it got to number number four in the charts I was looking at. And there was a bit of minor controversy because he, uh, if you believe the Orb, he rejected it and then said he didn't want it released. And uh, they released it and then we're a little bit snotty about him but now they're working together so it's all <laughs> so clearly everything it's all water under the bridge but actually it was a really good orb-ish track it, it worked really well in the end um so maybe this will be a highlight of this uh new album time will tell but the, in fact the interesting thing about the new album compared to the first is that for my own personal tastes uh, I far prefer the collaborators on the second. I mean, you've got Pet Shop Boys, you've got Julia Holter, you've got Jeff Mills. Cindy Lauper. <laughs> Cindy Lauper. Exactly. I mean, actually, Cindy Lauper is somebody I've been coming around on lately. Like, she's enough from my childhood that I sort of wrote her off automatically. But I was recently listening to her first album, and I mean, she's a pretty interesting figure, and it was a pretty interesting record, especially given the time and especially given the way they marketed her. Okay, I haven't dug back into the Cindy Lauper. I'll have to. Uh... I suggest that. Okay, um, but the interest that there's actually there's a trailer out now um, for Volume Two of Electronica, and he's talking about the making of it. And um, there was one thing in particular that didn't really inspire confidence because he's working with with Primal Scream, and right at the end of this trailer, um, there is what sounds a lot like a high energy version 
of Come Together, like really sort of pumping high energy version. And I was just thinking, is that what he's done with Primal Scream? I don't really like the sound of that. That's, uh, yeah. So we shall see. We shall see. Now, <laughs> the time has come to come together and talk about uh, Mutech Barcelona. Indeed, which is happening uh, next week, as we as we this coming weekend, I believe. Yeah, uh, are you going? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure which events I'm going to be going to yet, but but I am planning to go because you've been a few times, right? Haven't you? You know, much to my chagrin, I have not been to Mutech Barcelona. I've been to Mutech in Montreal. Um, a bunch of times, but but I've never been to the one here. Have you been here in in town? I must confess, I haven't. That's. Uh, but every, every time I see the lineup, I think I should. Who are you looking forward to seeing this year? Well, funny enough, we were just talking about them, but uh, I'd really like to see the Orb because they've just released a new EP. Actually, I'm not sure if they released it yet on Compact, mm-hmm. um, called Alpine, and it's actually really good. Um, and their album with Lee Scratch Perry, their albums with Lee Scratch Perry. Was it two? I think were were really good as well, um, and they seem to be on a quite improbable um, late career uh, high point. And who who are you? Who would you like to go and see? Well, I mean, they're sort of the usual um, kind of clubby suspects that that I that I would like to see at Nizza, assuming I can stay up late enough. I mean, Steffi, I always love Steffi. Um, Garrett Janssen, who I think I've only ever seen DJ once, and he was playing a techno set downstairs at Berghain, so kind of unusual for him. Um, so I'd like to see him. Uh, Atom, a.k.a. Uwe Schmidt, Adam Hart, is playing with Tobias, uh, Tobias Freund, so that's certain to be interesting. And and Flanger as well, which is uh, Bernd Friedman and Uwe Schmidt. I don't think they've played together in, in years, so that's a good bet. Paul with MFO. Every time I've seen Paul in the last five, six years, he's been, he's been great. And MFO is a, a visual artist who, who does a lot of really interesting stuff at Unsound every year. I would love to see Paul as well. I can imagine the force of that live. I remember seeing Paul at Unsound quite a few years ago now, and, and, and he was playing mostly new material. And it was, it was just super colorful. It was very right. textural. It was very um, sort of tactile in a way. I mean, in a, in a very psychedelic way. Um, while still being, you know, restrained and dubby and all that, he has a really amazing sense of just kind of um, a really amazing sense for for sound and uh, yeah. Because I always thought with him that he nailed his sound so well right from the start, or right from the start of what he released anyway. That where does he go? Because what what he did right at the start was was perfect well he he's had to deal with that because he you know he did three essentially perfect albums that were all variations on that sound and then he moved away from that for a while and he tried to find something new and i think he spent quite a few years sort of stumbling around in the wilderness not really finding that and then in the last i mean he just did an album last year that i thought was as good as anything he's done um and that followed i don't know like a a break of five years or something like that and um yeah, I mean he's he's changed. He's working more with kind of a krautrock palette. He's working right. more. He's it's not as explicitly dubby. It's not as chain reactiony as it once was. But but there's a through line. I mean it's it's obviously pull when you hear it. And the other thing that I'm curious about is is going to be Ricardo Villalobos with Max oh, yes. Loderbauer, featuring somebody named Claudio Puntin. I'm not sure who he is. Uh, it's sort of a. A live jazz set? Am I right in saying? Yeah, I, I think it's an extension of their Vilod project, which they they did an album. I think it was last year on on Perlon. I saw uh, Ricardo and Lodebauer play at Unsound a few years ago now, when they had done the ECM remixes uh, set. It was a double disc set of remixing the entire ECM labels catalog, and they did it with uh, pianist um, I think Christian Valamrud which is actually the brother of Susanna, a.k.a. Susanna and the Magical Orchestra. Uh, he's a jazz pianist. And I have to say 
uh, it was in a church. Right. It was in this like 14th century church. I mean, it should have been amazing. And I have to say, it was a really dreadful performance. Really? It was meandering and long and... Christian Wallenrud was absolutely the best thing. I mean, he, if I remember correctly, he was kind of improvising on piano, and that was being sent to Max Loderbauer, who was processing that on his setup. And then Ricardo was improvising on machines as well. I think there was a Schwemann uh, modular up there, and I don't know what else. But it just, it didn't, it was aimless, and it went on, and it went on, and it went on. And at some point, like Ricardo introduced a four-four kick drum, and it was a 14th-century church, an ambient set. It made no sense. To all of a sudden, you've got this like thudding 128 BPM kick drum, and then that went away. And then at a certain point, they kind of gelled and they they got into a, you know, they they found their vibe. And you were like, okay, this is really <laughs> working. And you could feel it building to a natural climax. And after having sat there in, in the unheated cold for like two hours, you're like, Oh sweet. They're they're They found it. They're coming to an end. This is going to be, you know, and then it just kind of like fell apart and they just kept going for like another. And it was just one of those, it was one of those sets that didn't really. Do you think together. he, he introduced a kick drum because he felt that he had to, you know, this is what I do. I'm a sort of essentially I'm a techno DJ. Do you think he felt that kind of, pressure I mean, what? no i don't think he, i don't think he feels any pressure at all i think he probably thought hey this would be nice <laughs> right about now a kick drum um so yeah i don't know hopefully hopefully um i i heard later that they hadn't rehearsed that at all right so that might have had something to do with that um we'll we'll see how it goes this time around ben uh maybe it's time to talk about recommendations i think so and we were talking um about we talked about some legends this week we've been talking uh about jean-michel jean and it got me thinking about another legend. Um, and as luck would have it, as I was thinking about this, an email pinged into my inbox um, announcing a remix uh, by Matthew Herbert of Carl Bartos. And I thought, well, there's a real legend, Carl Bartos. What, I mean, I, I'm sure you know. Of Kraftwerk. Of Kraftwerk, yeah. Joined uh, on the Autobahn Tour, was with them until 1990. Um, his writing credits are all over the man machine computer world and he sung on what might be my very favorite Kraftwerk song uh the telephone call so it, it, it's funny though he doesn't really get with all of that he doesn't really get the respect you you would imagine you know i mean i was just thinking about his history and thinking wow that's really quite something um and this track is a remix uh of a song called i'm the message which is from uh his first solo album and it was described in the email as a lost album because i hadn't heard it i must say um i don't i'm not necessarily sure why i thought it was lost but um i think maybe because it didn't do as well as it could have done at the time or something like that but i listened to it and i listened to the original and the original's great i mean it's like it has those really recognizably craft work melodies you know the kind of the vocal on it is very 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 craft work um and what matthew herbert has done and i don't know if this is deliberate but he's he his his remix of it has sort of made it sound like craft work on a dial-up internet connection it's really weird sounding really kind of purposefully sort of thin and uh, almost wrong in the way it sounds, but it kind of really makes you want to listen to it again. It, it almost takes the sort of quite lush strength of the original, really strips it back, and it's a really interesting remix. thing I really thought when I listened to um, this Carl Bartos track is that if you combined his kind of very craftworky vocal with the 
sort of beautiful sonics, but not particularly pop, of the Tour de France soundtracks, what a kind of album you would have had. If only he'd have stayed around, and if only um, he could have had a prominent role in Latter-day Craftwork, I think it would have been quite fantastic. Maybe Carl Bartos needs to hook up with Jean-Michel Jarre, because I feel like with Carl Bartos's melodic sensibility and, and Jean-Michel Jarre's command of his of the equipment i mean there you might actually have something kind of special you heard it here first (laughs) call us make it happen (laughs) and so what have you been listening to um well one of the things uh first up is is a new record on ivern discs which is john talabot's label based here in barcelona um by an artist named doris berg uh doris berg is alexander berg He's uh, Swedish, and he's one half of the duo Genius of Time, who for the last five, six years, they've done a bunch of records on Aniara, on Royal Oak, uh, Clone Royal Oak, and on Running Back. Um, uh, As Genius of Time, they do sort of a melancholy, deep house thing that I really like. Um, They had a song called Drifting Back that was kind of a piano tune. Um, A couple years ago, they had a, a pretty big song called Juno Jam that was this sort of... It was it was an anthem. It was a big hit, um, and it was this kind of like stripped down rhythm with a weird sort of whistly, uh, I'm assuming Juno melody, um, but really hypnotic and very earwormy and and really good stuff. Um, his so this solo record it's called Earblos, which I looked up uh, in a Google Translate, and Earblos apparently means Jack O' Lantern or Willow the Wisp. <laughs> Fenfire. Nice. And for those who don't know what Will o' the Wisp or Fenfire are, which I had to look at myself, it's uh, like a, a mysterious light you see over the marshes or the bogs. Um, it's an optical illusion that people used to mistake for ghosts. And and knowing that, actually, it's a really good title for the record because it has a very sort of wispy, ghostly feel to it. Um, it's it it's mostly a kind of a house slash techno record he's using uh what sound like classic drum machines fairly stripped down restrained rhythms um a lot of sort of bleepy synthesizer melodies uh on the title track there's a a melody that might be a clarinet i mean it's probably a synthesizer but it has kind of a like a balkan feel to it it's very very melancholy there's a lot of reverb uh and it's very atmospheric and yeah it's i'm a big fan of it it reminded me a little bit of Isole. Yeah, I think you could, I, I can hear that. I mean, there's something about the sense of space, something about the sort of the sourness of it all. The It was sort of, for me, it was very melodic, but not sort of obvious. It was quite um, intricate and melodic, um, but without ever being too obvious about it, without sort of shoving its its melodies in your face. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like melancholic without being maudlin. Um, it's almost sort of background music, but I can also imagine that on a dance floor it would be quite uh, powerful. I know that John Talabot included um, Juno Jam on his DJ Kicks mix, so I, I think you know you can kind of see why he gravitated towards Doris Berg. I mean, there's it's definitely got a, an Evern quality to it. Um, yeah, it's it's a really great record, and I think it's out now. And we'll, shall we listen to it? Which song? Let's, uh, yeah, let's listen to Cassiopeia. Cassiopeia. Ben, what else are you listening to this week? Um, I've been listening to uh, a song by Dark E. Freaker. <laughs> what a name. Called 2CI, um, which is uh, it's about to be released on Ninja Tune, I think, on an EP soon. Um, and it's one of those tracks that... It, it, I, I really like songs that are somewhere in between uh, urban music, for want of a better word, and sort of electronic music you know the the wilder sort of stranger electronic music um 
and uh, as luck would have it, he calls his music urban electronic. And um, he's sort of been around for a while. He's produced tracks. Um, he produced Next Type, which is a really big uh, grime tune. He produced uh, Blueberries for Danny Brown. Um, but this is the best track of his I've heard. It's just because it does have that sort of the urban drums, but the, the synthesizer line is really great, really quite psychedelic, and it really hits a sweet spot for me. It's funny you say psychedelic because 2CI is, of course, uh, it, it is a psychedelic drug. It's like 2CB. It's I, I don't know what goes into it, but it's 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 a drug. And, and clearly the title, I mean, to me, it's it's kind of replicating this this psychedelic feel. I mean, they're they're such a weird kind of buzzy synthesizer line. You you described it to me, I think, as maximalist. Yeah, kind of buzzy but beautiful you know and it's yeah. really it's really loud it's really kind of in 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 your face um but at the same time quite beautiful which is a great combination yeah it's listenable i mean it, it, it's listenable. no no but i mean i remember listening to it the first time and kind of being a little like you know what what am i listening to what is this and then going back to it and it wasn't at all like like i remembered it being um would you i mean when you say maximalist would you class it alongside things like the recent Rusty, for instance? I mean, do you feel like there's a similarity of, of ideas of Sonics there? I think so. Um, they, they feel... It sort of feels like they've come almost to the same point, from, but from di- very different worlds. You know, like mm-hmm. Rusty has probably come from this this background of happy hardcore and rave and all these kind of things, um, whereas Darky Freak has come more from uh, grime, a grime background. Um, but there's been a lot of crossover that way, you know, and in fact... They've both worked with Danny Brown, if I'm not much mistaken. Oh, yeah. Um, and, th- yeah, they've kind of ended up in this similar place. It's not quite as maximalist um, as Rusty, which is, you know, unbelievably kind of maximalist. But if you took uh, if you took a Rusty track, took out about five of the different elements, maybe that's what you'd be left with. And it doesn't suffer from... That, that might sound like a criticism, but it's not at all. It doesn't suffer from... That it's still pretty loud, still pretty maximalist, but it's not quite as sort of distracting, I guess, as a rusty track. Grime was for so long known as kind of a, a minimalist music, you know. I mean, it was. I mean, mm. going back to the beginning of Pulse X and things like that. I mean, it was all about the space. It was about these very severe, bleepy elements. Do you feel like this is? I mean, is this a grime track, or does this? You know, do you feel like this has an impact on the grime scene, or is is he kind of going off and doing his own thing? Well, I thought it was interesting for a number of reasons because I think somebody could put a vocal over it. You know, it sounds like there would be enough space for one, but it works perfectly well without one. And it's also he's recorded for Ninja Tune, which is, you know, not a label that's associated with putting out a lot of grime. So it kind of makes me think, well, what, I wonder what, what direction he's going in with this. Where, where's he going? Is he going to kind of concentrate on, on pure instrumental tracks or does he want someone to come and do a vocal on it, you know? Yeah, we we talked a little bit about Ninja Tune earlier, and I think we're going to have to talk about them further on an on an upcoming episode because their their A and R decisions have have been pretty interesting lately. They're they're pulling together a, a pretty diverse uh, roster. Well, the track I recommended last time, Throwing Shade, was on Ninja Tunes. That's right. Um, Darky Freaker is on Ninja Tunes as well, um, and it just suddenly struck me. Actually, they're putting out some really interesting piece of music and it's a million miles away from the herbalizer so. yeah i think they've been saddled sort of saddled with this 90s reputation in a way that that stopped being what they're about a long time ago yeah and actually i'm thinking that what they're doing is what a big indie label should do which is take people from the underground for want of a better word and giving them a bit of backing, you know, so it's not like they're going straight to the big, you know, big major label, but they are going to a label that has the structure, has people working in press, has, um, it, it should give them a lift to another level. And they're almost like cherry picking the best of the underground, which is something Warp have done 
for, for many yeah, very years, much similar models. And and Ninja also has uh, they've got a really strong publishing arm. So if you sign with Ninja, then they they really aggressively work to get your material um, in commercials, in films, and things like that. So I think that's uh, that's been a big help to a lot of the people that have signed with them. And your next track? Um, the next thing I'm listening to is by an artist that I know almost nothing about. Uh, I discovered it on a mixtape, which is one of the best ways to discover something. Um, the artist is named Dura, and the song in question is Indigo Ferma. Um, I heard it on a recent mix from Natural Magic, which is a Portland duo, uh, a couple friends of mine, uh, Matthew Quiet and, and Mike McKinnon. Um they, they they have a regular series of, of DJ Mixes podcasts called I Believe in Magic. And they opened their January 26th mix with this song by Dora. And it's beautiful. It's um, guitar and reverb and delay and looping. And it's a pure ambient song. Um, and so I, I, I went and I did a little... I mean, it's a beautiful way to open... A, a, a DJ right. mix because it's just this kind of you know liquid sound and it lets you sort of go wherever you want from there and Natural Magic it's a great mixtape it's very sort of Balearic New Age um, 105 BPM it's a great mix um, and anyway so I, I went looking for this Dura track and, and you can get it on Bandcamp um, he apparently is a guy named Matson Og he's based in Washington D.C. All of his music is guitar-based improvisations. He basically does stuff on cassette and then releases it also digitally. He's studying neuroscience and cognitive science, apparently. Um, I don't know if that has anything to do with the particularly sort of um, relaxing, you know, <laughs> ambient vibes of his music. Um, something that's interesting is everything, I went on kind of a spree and I bought everything I could find wow. online. and. All of his songs are basically 19, 20 minutes long, which seems to be, you know, the length of one yeah. side of a C40 cassette. Um, and yeah, it's improvised. It reminds me a lot of like Flying Saucer Attack or Jeffrey Cantu Ledesma or even Vinnie Riley of the Derudi column. Um, it's just swirling um, guitar, sort of looped ambient bits with lots of reverb and then sort of slightly meandering um, melodies over the top and it's, it's, it's really gorgeous. I was listening to it on this particular mix, and I noticed that they they couldn't bear to mix out uh, mix out of it. I think they included roughly eight minutes of it in the mix, and it's just I think it's it's a testament to how good the track is because you, you're listening to it and you're thinking you can't you can't stop this now. You can't go to something. I mean, it's like an hour long mix, so you can't have something that's twenty minutes. No, exactly. exactly. But, but it's oh, just another minute, just just another minute. You know, it's uh, yeah, and and listening to the entire thing. I mean, it works. It's it, you know, it's hard to to do a, a twenty minute song. You have to really. Most twenty minute songs don't need to be that long, and and this one really works. I mean, he builds to a beautiful, like very, very, very gently. He builds to an almost indiscernible climax, and then he he backs off of it. And um, yeah, he's he's great. So anyway, Dora, he's out of DC. We'll uh, we'll tweet out some some links. Uh, for his material and I highly recommend you pick it up lovely and that's it for uh, today and in fact this week thank you uh, very much for listening um, you can obviously check us out on various usual platforms SoundCloud iTunes Stitcher um, and if you listen on iTunes I know everyone says this but do do please rate and, and review and that kind of thing I always listen to podcasts and wondered why people say that and now I know um, but do please listen um, get in touch we're at Line Noise Pod um, and we'll hopefully be back in about two weeks thanks for listening again <laughs>